0: You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So 10 years ago, a friend of mine asked me and a group of other people to do something truly stupid. An adult obstacle course race? Yeah, and this was before they were like the businesses they are now. This was when it was more like a big Facebook event you could pay money to, and then they would decide what obstacles there would be. And the, the event he was asking me to be a part of was known for being particularly tough. It's a 10 mile race, and as if that wasn't enough, you then occasionally have to swim through ice water and under chain link fence, which will make it difficult to come up for air, You have to jump from log to log. You have to climb over 30-foot-tall obstacles. You have to crawl under barbed wire. And at the very end, just before the finish line, there's a mud pit with wires that dangle down with 10,000 volts of electricity just randomly coursing through them. And I kid you not, at one point, one person in the group remembers running at the pit and then just waking up on the ground, muddy and hearing screaming around him like he's in some kind of war. And then he gets up and tries to move, and then he just wakes up somewhere else. It was just like flashes of memory. And he tries to run and wakes up somewhere else and eventually somehow makes it through. And after all of this, you should know that it was a huge ordeal and that the friend who invited us did not participate. <laughs> he had cancer. It was, it, was a, it was an excuse, but it was a significant one. And the truth is, our group who was going through it, honestly, was known for being weirdly non-competitive. Because it was like every person we saw was our friend who was stuck with this crazy obstacle he couldn't get past. And so we were always sort of interested in inviting more people onto the team. People would get stuck by obstacles, and even though it's a race, we just they would get invited to be a part of the group. Until by the end of it, our group was quite a bit larger than it had started out. That reminds me of a group of people we're going to read about today in Mark chapter 2, who help a friend uh, get past a series of pretty ridiculous obstacles. So Mark 2, if you want to follow along with me, we're going to be at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to buy you a Bible. That's not just a thing that I say. Mark chapter 2, we're starting at verse 1. When he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, "'Why does this fellow speak this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone?' At once Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were discussing among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up, take up your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Blocked, stuck, paralyzed. There's a lot of that going around. People know how that feels. And it's particularly bad when you see a friend of yours or someone you dearly love who's in a situation where they are helpless, which makes you feel somehow even more helpless. People get stuck for all kinds of reasons. There's too many choices I'm not sure which one to make. Or we get trapped by addictions or just in our past with guilt and shame and trauma and difficulty forgiving and letting go and, and anger. And sometimes it's the future where you have too many options or not enough options, and somehow that, that's just worse. Or you, you know that there are so many people counting on you and so many people whose opinions matter to you and you can't make them all happy. Or with uncertainty, or anger, or doubt. We know what it feels like to be stuck, just paralyzed. And it's even worse when you're watching somebody you really care about. And the rumor that's going around in this story is that Jesus is somewhere nearby and he might be able to do something. That's verse one. There's a rumor out there that Jesus is nearby. This guy who, at the beginning of Mark, has done some amazing things. Every single person he has encountered, he has healed. They got demons. He kicked them out. They're sick. He healed them. Mother-in-law's sick. He heals her. She makes him dinner. It's amazing. Every single time Jesus encounters someone with a problem, he is healing them right and left. And there's a rumor going around that he's somewhere nearby. He's Where is he? He's in the house. Where's the house? It's in Capernaum. Where's Capernaum? This is where Capernaum is. So my friend Bacchans is going to pull up a map, and you should see kind of this bluish area. That's Galilee. There's a lot of that in the Bible. That's the Sea of Galilee which might help you understand what it is. Up toward the top of the Sea of Galilee, you see Capernaum and a lot of other cities just like right around it. And what tends to happen in the Gospels is that you see people who come from those little cities because they're not very far apart and they sort of all gather wherever it is that Jesus is. Like if you hear of a musician playing a really cool house show somewhere and you just, you want to get there first, but somehow there are already people who are already there. There's some comedian who's playing some little club and nobody knew about it and you knew about it and you're there and you know that suddenly there's going to be this huge guy. Everyone's going to find out. Or there's a political candidate, and everybody wants to hear about what's going Everybody just wants to be around Jesus. When he's talking, it's just it's an experience, and everyone wants to know. And it's an important thing to realize that all of these cities that you hear about in the Bible are not very far apart from one another up in Galilee. Because we shouldn't assume that everybody in the story is from Capernaum. Thanks, buddy. You can look that up. So everybody wants to see Jesus, but you should know that the houses we see in Capernaum, from archaeological evidence, are small. A few hundred square feet. Maybe the size of this room, not big. Maybe multiple rooms in this room, not big. Sometimes a courtyard and apparently like a doorway sort of area where people are gathering, not big. First century archeological evidence. We think that there's actually a house that might've belonged to Peter. That's a real thing in Capernaum. We may literally have found the place where this miracle happened. You can visit it, which is nuts. It's got lots of graffiti about Jesus that dates back to the first century. There was a very, very early church that was built there in the second century. And people talk about this is where Peter used to live, which is crazy. And this is not a very big house. Maybe a few dozen people could fit inside of it. And pretty quickly, the house is full, and pretty quickly, the area outside the house is full. And pretty quickly, that area is full. The doorway, and then you can't even get near the doorway. There's just this sort of, like, you imagine a cone of people sort of all trying to see and look through this little window or this little doorway into a small house. Everybody wants to be near Jesus. Everybody wants to hear what he has to say. And there's this big crowd, and you assume that a crowd is a good thing, right? A crowd always sounds like a good thing. Too many people buying my product at my business. That sounds great. Too many people, customers at my restaurant. That sounds great. Too many people like what I'm doing on Facebook. That sounds great. Too many followers on Instagram. That sounds incredible. Too many people at that rally, too many people at that protest. What do you mean too many? There's no such thing as too many people in a ministry. There's no such thing as too many people listening to Jesus. But the crowd is a problem. It's a problem because there's not enough room for somebody who needs to get near Jesus. That's a really important thing to hear. The Bible will regularly tell you that crowds of people are in the way of people who need to know Jesus. There is a difference between a crowd and a community. And we see both in this story. The paralyzed guy doesn't need any more obstacles between him and Jesus. It's hard enough to get to Jesus already. But it's clear that there's not room in this crowd for this man, there's not room near the feet of Jesus because of the crowd. And that's something to pay attention to because we are a crowd of people. And the church in the United States of America, very often, is a bit of an obstacle to people who want to know about Jesus. And there's already enough obstacles. It's already hard enough to get close enough to Jesus. You're already dealing with enough things that paralyze you, that stop you in your tracks, that block you. You really don't need a group of people who say that they love Jesus getting in the way. Now, we know that there are folks who because of whatever would say that well they just, you know, you're not like us and you don't really fit here. You're not really worshiping the way we like to worship so you don't really belong here. You don't you're not political enough so you can't really be a part of our church. You, you don't, you're, not, you're too political and so you can't really be a part of our community. You, you have too much doubt and so you can't really be a part of us or you, you have too much faith and we love to doubt. Or there's, just, there's all sorts of reasons that people can't really seem to fit in a space. At race is one of them, socioeconomic status is one of them. We know certainly there are places and times when people would show up to a church and go, you know what, this is kind of a blue-collar crowd, and I'm sort of, I work in an office, and I don't know if I fit. This is sort of an office crowd, and I'm kind of a, I work with my hands, I don't know if I fit. And as a church, we always have to be a community and not a crowd, a place where there's always room for at least one more person who needs to hear about Jesus. Always room for at least one more in your community group. Always room for at least one more person who wants to sing or play an instrument. Always room for one more person who wants to learn how to preach. Always room for one more person who wants to step into leadership. Always room for one more person who wants to serve. Always room for one more person who doesn't really believe, who kind of has trouble with faith. Always room for one more person who needs to be baptized. Always room for one more person around the table. Always room for one more person who doesn't quite fit for whatever reason. There always has to be room for one more one more community group, but not just that one more person in your life. There needs to be room for one more friend in your life, one more person in your house, one more person around your dinner table, one more relationship with one more person who doesn't really know Jesus and needs to. That's the difference between a crowd and a community. You see, the people in this story, the four guys, I love them. I love everything about them. I love how they just refuse to accept obstacles. They refute. They are they're a faith that will not be denied. My friend is paralyzed, not for long. That's a lot of confidence. My friend, I don't care how far it is, we will carry him. My friend, I don't care if there is a crowd between us, I don't care if there is a roof between us, I will destroy someone's house, I will get them to Jesus. Come hell or high water, there is nothing that will stop us from getting our friend to the feet of Jesus. You should not assume that these guys are from Capernaum. They might be, but they might have come from one of those other towns. They may have come by boat. They may have come over a long distance. They might have come down mountains. They apparently have rope with them. They are prepared for difficult terrain. These are people who came ready to get a paralyzed guy to Jesus. This is special ops kind of community. There is nothing that will stop us. Nothing at all. And I wonder, honestly, how willing a participant, a paralyzed man is in this story. Because if it were me, I think I would... Guys, listen. I really don't want to, like, this is going to be... You're probably gonna drop me, guys. Listen, we What do you think's really gonna happen? You think Jesus? What do you think he's gonna be able to do? Shut up, Luke. Listen, guys. I'm telling you, like, it's just gonna embarrass me. It's just gonna embarrass him. This is a long trip. We don't even know he's gonna be there when we get there. Shut up, Luke. I have friends who would refuse, absolutely refuse, to listen to me if I were in trouble, and I know that you do too. And the hope is that we would be a community like that, that would say to our friends, "Look, you need to get near Jesus." and not really let them be an obstacle to their own obstacle, getting removed. Now, these folks carry them over a long distance, right? And they get all the way there, and you can imagine, again, the paralyzed guy saying, listen, guys, there's too much of a crowd. You're just like, you tried, and thanks, but we should go home. No, we're going up on the roof. Now, imagine that you're a community of people, and you've brought somebody who desperately needs to be near Jesus, You know that Jesus is the kind of person who likes to heal people. And you get near a crowd, and that crowd just won't let you in. Nobody will give up their place in the crowd. Nobody will make room for you to get in toward Jesus. People can't step out of the way for that. This crowd is very much in the way, and these people are not going to wait. They're not going to wait for all of these people to be self-absorbed and get near Jesus. They're going to make sure that their friend doesn't spend another minute paralyzed longer than he has to. They are going to do anything and everything to get him to the feet of Jesus. And so they climb up on a roof, and they destroy a roof. Now, you need to probably know a little bit about roofs. This is not as permanent damage as it may sound. This isn't somebody chopping through shingles. They don't need an axe. Uh, My friend Bakhazi is going to pull this up. So, this is how you build a roof in Palestine. And the truth is, this is how people still build roofs all over the world. If you know what adobe is you know basically the kind of thing that we're talking about. In Arizona, we have an easier time understanding the Bible because we are better Christians. That's just the truth of it. Also because we live in the desert. Those of you in Minnesota and Michigan, I'm just messing with you. Uh, but that's, that's the truth. So what you do, go back a sec, Bikansi. So you set up these kind of beams, uh, cedar in Palestine, uh, across sort of stone walls, and then on top you throw grass. Uh, this sort of woven together. So would you pull up the next slide? Uh, and people just sort of like weave it between these different beams. You can keep going. And what you throw on top of the grass is usually some, like, layer of mud. And on top of the layer of mud, you put a layer of kind of ash or gravel, something like that, some dirt. And then you sometimes throw another layer of grass and then another layer of mud, and you can keep kind of layering it. Uh, But eventually, it's strong enough for people to just stand on and roll. And that's what happens. The idea really is that you want to flatten this out every time that it rains. And the rain, because it's the desert, it rains like it does here. It's not gonna soak through the roof, it's gonna run right off. So as long as you keep compacting it, that's what the bottom would look like, this is what the top looks like. It's watertight, which is amazing because it's just dirt and grass and sticks. But it really does keep water out. This is a rooftop in Palestine being made in the old way that they've always been made. This is exactly the kind of roof that they're digging through. Strong enough to hold a family on top in the desert at night. It's the second story of your house. That's where you want to sleep. It's nice and cool on a roof. But weak enough that if you were committed to it, you could get through it. And that's exactly what these guys do. Five men on a roof that's strong enough to hold them, but also weak enough to be dug through. So in verse 4, what it says is, literally in Greek, they unroofed the roof. Uh, They began digging through it, and after they've dug through it, they lower him down, and you can just imagine Jesus is in the house teaching. There's this big crowd of people. They're all super engaged. These weird guys go around to the back of the house, find their way up onto the roof, and all of a sudden you're sort of hearing thumping on the roof, and then somebody arguing with the guys like, hey, stop it, and shut up, Luke, and they're, I found a stick, I found a rock, and they start just kind of scraping through, and you start hearing like kind of clawing and scraping, and little bits of dust are starting to fall from the ceiling, and Little bits of grass are sort of wafting down. And at some point, Jesus stops and a big old rock falls down. And everybody gets kind of quiet. And now they're all just focused on the ceiling. And Jesus isn't teaching anymore because there's pinpricks of light coming through. And bits and pieces are getting ripped out of the way. And you see a face who looks sheepish but not apologetic. Because he definitely meant to rip the roof apart. And then there's a big enough space. And slowly, you're lowering a guy down. And there's a paralyzed man at the feet of Jesus looking up going, I'm really sorry about this. They, like... I I couldn't stop him. And a crowd full of people looking expectantly, and Jesus looking up at their friends and down at this man, and he sees their faith, it says. And he springs into action. There's an incredible power in a community of people that will stop at nothing to bring their friends to the feet of Jesus. That will stop at nothing to bring our friends, our neighbors, our family members, whatever, to the feet of Jesus. That we will not stop. We started this year talking about spiritual conversations and evangelism. Some of you remember. Some of you are new. But we started this year talking about that and all of the different obstacles sometimes we put up in those sorts of conversations. Look, uh, I'm going to feel really awkward about this. You know, I I don't know that they're really that interested in it. You know, I think they might get offended. I think this might create like a social awkwardness for me long term in this space. And we talked about all of those different objections we have and we talked about different tools and and ways to deal with them. By the way, all of that's still on our website, the curriculum for witness, learning how to have better spiritual conversations, all still on our website. But the punchline of that was that each of us would start praying for three people every day. Three people every day for a year who do not know Jesus. If you do not know three people who do not know Jesus, you need room for one more person in your life. But three people every day, and I know that some of us have sticky notes by our beds and at our office and on our mirror, and you're literally praying for them every single day. And I hear stories from you guys that are amazing. That over the months, the more you pray, the more you found that God has actually given you weird opportunities to talk to folks about Jesus. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's come to know Jesus. But you've had weird opportunities to really start bringing people to the feet of Jesus. You are no longer an obstacle in that relationship. You are one of the people who's doing everything you can to get people to the feet of Jesus. If you're not praying for three people, start. If you've forgotten, start back up. If you don't have three people, find a third person. We want to be a community of people, not just a crowd that kind of likes Jesus, but a community of people that is committed to bring our friends and our neighbors to someone we know can really bring healing in their lives, because it's happened in us. This guy gets to the feet of Jesus, and Jesus sees the faith of the friends. The faith of the friends, it's their faith, not his faith, the man, but their faith, the faith of a community of people, and Jesus takes action, and he says, Son you are forgiven. Literally in Greek, by the way, it says, Forgiven, child, your sins. The first two words out of his mouth are forgiven and child. That's Jesus directly to us every single time that we meet Jesus. He always reminds us that we are forgiven children of God, dearly and deeply loved by God. And that's a really sweet moment, but kind of not what everyone wanted to happen. You, know, like you can imagine the guys on the roof like, do something about his legs. His legs, the legs. Come on, G- Like, that's, that's what we were all kind of, like. this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark to this point that Jesus has met someone in need of healing and not healed them immediately. It absolutely defies your expectations. This is not what you thought Jesus was going to do. And that's not to say that this isn't a really sweet moment. Superficially, if you're a paralyzed guy on the ground feeling kind of embarrassed about all the fuss that's being made for you, it's nice for somebody to go, don't worry about it. That's a really nice moment for him, but obviously at a much deeper level, we're talking about something that's, that's really going to the core of this person, the core of this situation. That Christians believe theologically there's a lot more to this sentence than I forgive you for destroying the roof, but actually I forgive you at a fundamental level. You are forgiven. Your sins are wiped away. That inner paralysis in your life is fixed and healed and will transform you inside and out. That's something that has happened to many of us in this room. As God has dealt with us slowly and steadily on the inside, we've found that we are completely different people on the outside. And the truth is, sometimes when you look at somebody like this, a disabled person, you think of them as a project, someone to be fixed. And thankfully, God does not do that. God never looks at any of us like a project. We are always round characters, not always broken in the way that everyone sees our brokenness, but he's aware of a deeper brokenness in us. He deals with the stuff that really matters to us. And for all we know, this paralyzed guy really needed to hear those words much faster than the words, I will heal your paralysis. Forgiven, child. And their logic goes, well, he can't be forgiven unless he's healed. And so Jesus is going to say, well, I'll heal him, so then you can know that he's really been forgiven. And we see Jesus say very, very clearly, look, you, you seem to be having a lot of trouble with this, which is easier to say, you're forgiven, or stand up, take up your mat, and walk. And i got to tell you, I've been wrestling with that all week. I have no idea which sentence is more difficult. Both of them sound extremely difficult to me. You are forgiven. That sounds easy in one sense because, honestly, there's kind of no proof. That's an invisible thing that may or may not happen in God somewhere else. But you say to a paralyzed guy, stand up, take up your mat and walk. I'm going to know real quick if you've got the power to do that. It makes me uncomfortable even thinking about it. Because that's, that would be a crazy demonstration of God's power and extremely painful if it didn't happen. So we're, we're going to see an example of Jesus' authority in this moment as he tells him to stand up, take up your mat, and walk. We'll realize he really can forgive sins. But the truth is, a doctor could heal my bones, right? And actually, quite a few medical professionals and remarkable scientists can do amazing things in our world. We, are, we live in a time of miracles in many ways when it comes to doctors and science and the way that it operates. But most doctors, scientists, counselors would tell you That even though we can heal bodies, we can't do a lot with souls. There is a kind of pain and brokenness that goes deep into a person that can affect their bodies in ways that we don't really understand, that we can't really do anything about. That's the stuff that only God can do. And so God manages to heal both things, both body and soul, bringing a person back together, and we see healing and restoration happen. Right, That, That God looks at this man and says, Well... Just so that you'll understand that I have the authority to do these things, that I can do these things. Stand up, take up your mat, and go home." And the guy stands up, takes up his mat, and he goes home. Immediate. right? Let there be light, there's light. Let there be non-paralysis, and there's non-paralysis. Let there be forgiveness, and there must be forgiveness. And this man goes home, and everybody is blown away. Blown away by what they see. The last line, all of a sudden, all of the people are united. The skeptics And the faithful, the fans, the critics, the four guys on the roof, everyone becomes a community saying, we've never seen anything like this before. We are all amazed at the power of God, at what God can do. There's this old Meister Eckhart line. He likes to say that that's how saints become saints. Uh, Not by turning away from the world in prayer, but by turning toward their neighbors prayerfully. That's how you can see God show off and show up, how you can see God really move in the world. When you're turning toward the world and go, God, I don't have enough to, I I can't do anything about this, and I really need your help right now. I really need to love these people right now. I really need to see healing and, and restoration and wholeness and forgiveness. And that's when you see God move, and that's something that slowly and steadily God uses in our life to bring real transformation, to move us actually into being saints. Everyone's amazed and blown away at the power of God. In Jesus Christ and the four guys on the roof who always knew all along look we can't heal you all we can do is get you to Jesus that's who you and I are called to be a community of people that goes look we can't save anybody but we can bring them to the Savior I can't really heal anybody but I can bring them to the healer I can't forgive anybody but I can bring them to the forgiver. and what we see in Jesus is someone who is really committed to demonstrating to us just how much he loves us just how much he's forgiven us just what he's done in our lives Jesus, who doesn't just say, God loves you. Jesus, who doesn't just say, God would do anything for you. God, who doesn't just say, I'll send prophets, I'll write stuff in the clouds, I'll scribble things into rocks and hand them down from on high. But God, who sent his son into the world, his only son into the world, so that you and I might not die, but have everlasting life. God, who sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God, who doesn't just say, I love you, I'd do anything for you, but who shows it to us, with his body. Jesus Christ who goes to the cross to show you that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus Christ who rises from the dead to show you that this whole resurrection thing is not some metaphor, not some hypothetical, not some symbol about the possibility that, you know, people maybe are important to God, but the reality that you and I will live forever. The reality that death is not the end of our story. God has demonstrated this for us in himself, And all of us are amazed, and you and I become a community gathered around that event that God has shown us just how much authority He has, just how much power He has in your life and in mine. And so we are people who go out into the world, who help folks that we know and dearly love to get unstuck, to get unparalyzed, because there's this rumor that we all believe, and it changed our lives. There's this rumor that we all believe that Jesus actually can do something if only we would get our friends to the feet of Jesus. Would you pray with me?